solve life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Night with Will and Noah. Thank you for being here. I am Noah Gattel, film critic for The Rye Record. And with me on the podcast, after a brief hiatus, is my co-host, Will Ivanovich. Will, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm just happy to be here. I don't write for The Rye Record, um, it's, which is odd, considering I'm related to like half the people that... Uh, you know, work for it and run it. But uh, you've you've written a couple things for the Rye Record over the year. You're a contributing uh, writer, I would it's, say. It's been some time. I had uh, I had more hair the last time I wrote for them. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, well, the first thing we do on this podcast is talk about what we have seen recently. Uh, we have a segment called "What Did You See This Week?" So I'm going to go first and tell you I haven't seen much this week because, as you know, and our listeners don't. I was at a silent meditation retreat for a good portion of the last two weeks, so there were there were no movies to be watched at the retreat. But I will say, when I was meditating, a lot of movies popped into my head. So many, in fact, that I left there thinking, you know, I just I watched too many movies. Uh, one of the one of the weird uh, trends was that a lot of Jack Nicholson movies popped into my head. First of all, there was. Anger management, which came in a lot, I think, because there's a scene set at a Buddhist monastery. Uh, the Departed popped into my head a lot, maybe because it was in the news a little bit last week. People in my world on Twitter were talking about how there was a Kickstarter to remove the rat from the last scene of The Departed digitally, and everybody was making fun of that, so that was on my mind. And for some reason, the last detail came into my head a lot. I don't really know why, except I guess Jack Nicholson is really buried deep, deep in my subconscious there. And uh, I guess that's something I have to work on. How do you think Jack would fare at a silent retreat? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he could be one of the instructors, I think. Yeah. He can do a lot. You know, he can communicate a lot with just like an eyebrow raise. So I don't know if he even needs, even needs speech. Hmm. Well, we'd have to see. Me, I'm hmm. at a silent retreat. I probably could have knocked out, you know, at least one season of one of those uh, serial dramas and probably about 10 <laughs> movies. But I think you and I might have different priorities at these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you seen this week? Uh, so I watched the other night Saving Mr. Banks, which came out in 2013 on, um, I watched it on Netflix. Uh, this is a movie that stars Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as uh, P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins. And Hanks plays Walt Disney. Um, it's the story of P.L. Travers coming to Hollywood in the early 60s. Very reluctantly, she's uh, considering signing over the uh, film rights to her collection of Mary Poppins books to Walt Disney, who's been trying to acquire this property for something like 20 years. And uh, Travers is incredibly protective over sort of her, her greatest and sort of only recognized literary work, but it's also has very, very deeply personal origins to her. She's very afraid of Mary Poppins becoming just another commercialized Disney kids movie, which she's, you know, at times uh, 
it's demonstrated that there's real risks of that becoming. And it, the movie mostly focuses on the conflict between her and Walt Disney, uh, who Hanks really does a terrific job portraying uh, as a somewhat fictitious, nicer, warmer, friendlier version of Walt Disney, while mm-hmm. Thompson uh, very much uh, is realistically depicted as the uh, standoffish and abrasive P.L. Travers. Um, the movie is really interesting and moving in parts when it shows how the books are being translated onto the big screen, but it focuses way too much on P.L. Travers's childhood is sort of showing how Mary Poppins came to be the tragic events that happened in her early life in Australia and uh, who really the, uh, the character of Mr. Banks, you know, the title character of this movie, who uh, is the father of the children in Mary Poppins, what happened to the real Mr. Banks and why it was so important for her to sort of try to redeem him through her books, where she pays very little attention to Walt Disney's, I think, equally compelling story about why it was so important for him to depict Mary Poppins on screen. He also had an equally difficult and tragic childhood, and he was trying to redeem his father, sort of his own Mr. Banks in a way, by portraying him in the movie. Uh, the best scene, which actually really brought me to tears, was showing how Let's Go Fly a Kite was composed. And I really wish there was more of that because the story about how Mary Poppins came to be a movie is, I find, a lot more interesting than what made P.L. Travers sort of such a difficult person. But uh, it is, it's very much worth seeing. I have seen it. I saw it when it first came out. I don't remember thinking much of it, thinking it was sort of... Um... You know, corporate propaganda for Disney is kind of how I felt about it. But I do remember, I think it was Jason Schwartzman and B.J. Novak play the songwriters, right? Yes. I remember thinking they were terrific. So I assume they had a lot to do with the scene that you're talking about. Yes. I I mean, actually, I was looking at the numbers on it last night. It was actually, I think it was very well received just in terms of box office, mostly because Mary Poppins now uh, getting to be this year 55 years old since it came out it still has a lot of purchase i mean they just made a uh, a remake mary poppins returns with uh um, sequel 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 me, sequel with uh emily blunt as uh the great mary poppins so it's still after all these years the story still captivates us but uh i don't think saving mr banks quite does it justice Anyway, uh, speaking of iconic female characters with the power of flight, Noah, what did you think of Captain Marvel? (laughs) That's right. We're supposed to talk about Captain Marvel this week, and you and I both saw it, and it made a lot of money at the box office. It's going to be a huge hit, probably doing similar business to what Black Panther did. Uh, So we're talking, you know, a billion dollars worldwide, more probably. And, you know, I liked it. I mean, look, it's a Marvel movie. You know, I mean, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to know what this movie is, it looks and feels like all the other Marvel movies. So there's a consistent uh, theme. There's consistent plot devices in all these movies. And of course, they're all connected plot wise as well, even though this one takes place mostly in the 1990s. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But I'll give I'll try to give a, a, a plot summary, although I have to tell you, I can't always follow the plot of these movies. I don't know if I'm just old or I'm not I'm still not used to comic book kind of devices, but you don't really have to follow it that much. The basic idea is that uh, Brie Larson plays Carol Danvers, who when we first meet her, we think she's part of this alien race known as the Kree. 
who are protecting their territory from a rogue species of alien. She's like a soldier for them. She gets captured by the rogue species and they uncover some of her old memories and she realizes she actually is Carol Danvers, an Air Force pilot from Earth who ends up acquiring some special powers from something called a light speed energy source, I think. And then she has her memory erased and she ends up with the Kree. So over the course of the movie in, in the 90s, which is present day in the movies, she gets back to Earth. She teams up with a young Nick Fury at a nascent government agency called S.H.I.E.L.D. to try to stop the bad guys from, I don't know, doing something. Uh, but more importantly, she learns more about who she is and who the bad guys really are, who are maybe not who she thought they were in, in the beginning. And as far as plot and character go, it, it's pretty vanilla. I mean, I, th I thought it had some laughs, most of which involved Samuel L. Jackson and a cat named Goose, which is a clear tip of the cap to Top Gun, right? Uh, and the fight scenes are, you know, okay. But for me, like Carol Danvers is a really nothing character and Larson did very little with it. I was not impressed with her performance, which is based largely on side-eyeing and smirking at people. And as somebody who really experiences films through character, that's something I know about myself, I really found it hard to get engaged with the movie emotionally. But I recognize that in some ways this is not for me. It's a movie that men can enjoy, but it really does feel to me like it's made with women in mind. And the experience of being a woman is threaded through the movie in some really important ways. Carol Danvers is constantly told she can't do things by men. She's controlled by men. She doesn't have a love interest in this movie, which is very radical for a female-driven film. And I saw this movie with a woman who, you know, isn't like a huge fan of comic book movies, my wife. And she related to it way more than I did. So I think maybe the fact that her character isn't that fleshed out is, is not, not okay for me, but a woman might be able to um, impress her own experiences onto that template a little bit more. So, As a woman, Will, what do you think? <laughs> as, as someone who the movie was made for. And yeah, I, I do want to, I, I want to touch on, on the idea that the movie wasn't made for necessarily, I don't know, half the population. It's sort of like the, uh, the Thanos in uh, you know, Avengers <laughs> Infinity War, which is we'll just eradicate the men and then, you know, half the population and then. Captain well, that's Lord obviously not true. They, men, they want men to buy tickets, right? Sure. But like men are going to buy tickets. If you go to Marvel movies, you're going to go to Marvel movies. I think what they're trying to do is really cultivate the female fan base more. Sure. No. And and I think that they certainly should. And what I, I find often ironic about a lot of Marvel movies. And at this point, we're now. I think it's it's 20 years since mm. the first Marvel movie came out, which was uh, X-Men, uh, directed by the uh, the now problematic Brian Singer. Uh, we've had 20 years of Marvel movies, and as a person who really got into comic books in the late 80s and early 90s, sort of the, uh, the second golden age, second or third golden age of Marvel comic books, um, what I find sort of interesting and limiting about the movies is Marvel Comics actually had a bunch of great female characters, uh, not equally represented to be sure, but the characters themselves were interesting. They were uh, at times pure, uh, less flawed than their male counterparts, but they had interesting stories. In fact, you know, you talk about Carol Danvers as a character in the movie of not being very interesting, Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel comics and actually in her relation to a lot of the X-Men stories, which for corporate and studio purposes, 
you know, they cannot combine the X-Men characters with the rest of the Marvel universe, but mm -hmm. she's an interesting character. Her memory loss plays a lot into it. And of course, memory loss is often used in a lot of comic book movies, often to great effect to very little effect, uh, positively, I think in Captain Marvel, but mm -hmm. she, unlike the Captain Marvel depicted in Larson's film, she has all sorts of vulnerabilities. She loses her power. She gains new ones. She goes through an intense personal metamorphosis. She has a great love interest who, for a variety of reasons, she can never really be with. But actually, that's something that comes up in a lot of comic books, whether it's a female character or a male character. You think about all the Superman movies. They always did that well about how uh, Clark Kent can never quite be with Lois Lane. There's a, long, there's a lot of reasons for why he can never be with her. And sure. I actually find that limiting because Larson's character in Captain Marvel has no real vulnerabilities save for what the oppressive Kree and, you know, to a sort of more abstract sense, the patriarchy has done to her all of her life and keeping her down. Besides the limitations that others have put upon her, she has no limitations herself. And of course, some of the most interesting parts about the superheroes, you know, going back obviously to what kryptonite is to Clark Kent or just the limitations of having to have a secret identity, which often plagues the character of Spider-Man's Peter Parker. It's the problems that they have in their lives that make them richer and more interesting. And it makes their victories all the better. That's my problem sort of near the end of the movie is that uh, her victories are not very satisfying because they don't feel particularly earned. And so while I don't think that this was a, a terrible movie. I was actually entertained for the most part of it. I felt so oftentimes that the the parts which focused upon Brie Larson's Captain Marvel were the least interesting and rewarding, and it was all the supporting characters that added a richness to it. I actually thought that the um, special effects were pretty good. Marvel can be hit and miss on that sometimes, and uh, I th think it actually kept a pretty good pace. It didn't drag. But there was a lot missing in the character of Captain Marvel. And I don't, I don't actually fault Brie Larson. I think she sort of gave as much as she could. But it's a very two-dimensional character that they presented in this. I agree. Regarding hidden identities, you know, that's not really a thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, you know, in, in Iron Man, how he ends the movie by saying, I am Iron Man. That's like a statement saying, we're not, we're not going to have those in this, in this world. Uh, but isn't that the case with Marvel in general, that the DC movies are more about or, or the DC comics are more about hidden identities and the Marvel ones are not? Or, or am I making that up? No, you're not, actually, with few exceptions. I think Spider-Man probably looming large the most. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. And so in the DC movies, at least most of them, they do spend a fair amount of time with these superheroes acting out normal lives as best they can, often with, you know, creating real conflicts and being torn sort of between two worlds. And with Marvel, you know, the Avengers are hanging around being the Avengers. And so they can never really have personal lives because they're constantly being superheroes, which it, that is at, at contrast with a lot of the comic books that came out portraying these characters. Uh, you know, for example, like Thor, most of the comic books depict Thor spends half the time being Thor, the God of Thunder, and the other half the time being trapped in the body of a very normal man. Sort of the only uh, example you see of that in the movies is Mark Ruffalo's portrayal of the Hulk and Bruce Banner. And he sort of gets short shrift. And he's actually, I think, probably the most interesting character in the Avengers. And they don't really focus on him that much. 
Yeah, you never see him just as like Bruce Banner out in the world. Yeah, like I don't recall ever having seen him do that in any of the movies. In in the Ed Norton Incredible Hulk, you saw that a little bit, but never with Mark Ruffalo. Uh, that's an interesting point. Getting back to what you were saying about Captain Marvel's lack of vulnerability, you know, her not having a secret identity may not be an unusual in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it is it is a problem for the movie that she doesn't really have like. She doesn't really have much of like a personal flaw that she needs to overcome. Like most of these movies, I mean, any movie that that's what makes a great hero's journey is like the character has a some heroic qualities, but they have a major flaw that they need to overcome. And when they overcome it, they self-actualize and, and things are good again. And as you pointed out, her flaws, at least the ones the movie is most interested in, are all their obstacles she has to overcome, but they're obstacles that are external. There are ways that she is being held down uh, by others. And I guess the writers of the movie would probably say there's this idea that she is being told not to trust her emotions and she learns to trust her emotions over the course of the movie. But that's still not really a flaw. That's just like what what the world is telling her and that she has believed. So that's pretty weak in terms of like a character thing that she needs to overcome. And I actually think that's probably the that's when I'm talking about the fact that I'm not invested in her character. I think that's what it is. There's just not that much to invest in because she doesn't she doesn't have much of an emotional uh, transformation. Yeah. And the emotional transformation that they portray is at you know near the end of the film, a montage of her getting up every time she's fallen down. And I was thinking about mm-hmm. it later. I mean, Noah. You know, ballpark it for me. How many times have you fallen down in your life? You know, on the ice or you know, riding a bike or, you know, you trip over your shoe or whatever. How many times would you estimate you've fallen down? Twice. Okay, twice. Both times <laughs> have have you gotten up, Noah? Did, did you get no, up? No, the, the last You're, time was in 1989. <laughs> no, are you still laying on the floor? Since the last time I didn't know I could, you didn't know you could. Nobody ever, nobody ever believed in me. Do you feel like the patriarchy or the system at large has been telling you that you just can't get up? I think that must be it. Okay, well, I'm telling you now, Noah. If you got up, (laughs) I'd say after watching this movie, there's probably a 50 50 chance that you could have godlike powers if you only stood up and realized yourself fully. Well, you know, Chris Nolan's uh, Batman movies used the same idea, right? Wasn't Alfred always telling him, you know, we, we fall down so we can learn to pick ourselves up or something? That's not a new idea, but using it as a shortcut to like self-actualization is, is pretty weak sauce, I would agree. And it's kind of uh, a lot of what I saw in the movie were those sort of cheap, unearned moments. I mean, you mentioned the fight scenes, which actually some of the earlier fight scenes I liked quite a bit. But near mm-hmm. the end, one of the final fight scenes where... Captain Marvel takes on, uh, you know, five mostly male assailants and uh, no doubts I'm just a girl is queued up. It sort of felt like a cheap, unearned moment. In fact, you talked about this movie at times focusing on uh, female empowerment to some degree. I feel like they did it in a really cheap and tame way that didn't risk a lot. And, you know, there were a fair amount of, you know, 90s alt rock. Uh, lead female songs in the movie, which I enjoy. It's sort of, I like some of the 90s nostalgia sort of worked and didn't feel like it was too much fan service. But I'm a, uh, I have a real stick uh, up my you-know-what about songs being queued up in unearned moments in movies. Mm. You know, you use a song, you got to earn that song. And I, it, it all felt rather shallow. And in fact, 
if this movie were actually trying to be transgressive and really make it about female empowerment, there's a scene near the end where Brie Larson faces off against her mentor and one-time friend, Jude Law, who actually plays a pretty good, somewhat quasi-villain in the movie. And you have scenes in the beginning where the two of them are in hand-to-hand physical combat, and you see him really beating on her. And it's actually, I felt like the beginning of the movie was actually took a lot more risks. And near the end, you're sort of queued up for the two of them to have a fist fight again. You know, she doesn't use her powers. He puts away his weapons and you think that a fight's going to happen and it doesn't. And I feel like a, a truly transgressive or film focused on female empowerment, challenging archetypes would actually have them duke it out once again. And her, you know, her beat them uh, and actually put forth the idea that a, a woman of Brie Larson's size, if properly trained, could kick Jude Law's ass. That, that would be satisfying to this audience to which we assume that this movie is being made for. I don't know. I mean, I hear, I hear your point, but I think you could look at it two ways. You could say, and look, are we the right people to be having a discussion about what is empowering for women and what is According isn't? No. to Brie but... Larson, no. If you recall from a year ago, uh, she was talking about the movie A Wrinkle in Time and saying that she doesn't want to hear from straight, white, 40-year-old, film critics about what they thought of that movie or presumably any movie which features women prominently or directed by women. I mean, you're almost 40. That's what you call it. You're almost 40. That's Brie you... Larson doesn't want to hear from you, Noah. That's okay. I, I think that's what you call advanced marketing. She was already making Captain Marvel and they were laying the groundwork and that's fine. I, I, my only point is that, you know, having her fight Jude Law is certainly one way to show that she is equal to him or superior to him. But I do think her saying, and this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, refusing to fight him and saying, I have nothing to prove to you, I think is equally cathartic for some women. I saw somebody online say that that's the equivalent of like a woman on Twitter, you know, just blocking some like men's right activist who is like caking up all of her time saying horrible things. So it may it may uh, equate to the female experience in our world today in some, some ways that we haven't considered. And, you know, whether you're beating a man on his own terms or whether you're setting the terms yourself, I, I think that's an interesting question. And the movie, the movie picks one way of doing it. I think the other way, having her physically beat him would be equally interesting. But again, to your point about feminism versus sort of girl power, I don't think this movie is supposed to actually be like a feminist text. This is a movie that's supposed to be broadly appealing to women, probably cathartic for women who don't get to see female action heroes a lot. And yeah, it's it's more the no doubt just a girl kind of movie than something more kind of deeply resonant. Um, but it was refreshing even a little bit to me uh, as a man seeing that kind of movie on screen. And I think to women, it was probably more than refreshing. So... One thing I really did like about the movie was it was not just an origin story for Brie Larson, but it was an origin story for S.H.I.E.L.D., an agency which looms large in a lot of uh, prior Marvel films, particularly those about the Avengers. And S.H.I.E.L.D.'s lead hero, Nick Fury, played by Mr. Sam Jackson. It's an interesting portrayal of Nick Fury because... He's a pre-iconic Nick Fury. He still has a full head of hair. He still, for most of the movie, has both eyes. And you actually can finally learn how Nick Fury lost his, uh, his iconic left eye and got the eye patch. But uh, I also liked it because he plays Nick Fury in an understated way. 
which is the first time he's ever played in that. And it reminded me of a discussion you and I had a couple of weeks ago about the, I think, largely unfortunate turn in Sam Jackson's career over the last 20 years where he just plays a slew of over-the-top characters fill of, filled with you know big monologues, drawn-out one-liners. And uh, when he's not doing that, when he was, is playing sort of a, let's say, relatively subtle character, or subtle portrayal of a character, he's very rewarding. And uh, he was always a great feature in supporting roles in a lot of movies in the 90s and into the 2000s. And uh, it was actually nice to see a somewhat understated Sam Jackson in this movie. Well, I agree. And that's a masterful segue into the second half of this episode when we are going to draft relatively subtle Samuel L. Jackson performances. And just to underscore your point, I think, look, Samuel L. Jackson is a guy who works a lot. You look at his filmography and it is just stacked. The guy is always doing something. And that means that he takes a lot of roles where, you know, his, his more base qualities are those that are being called for. You know, he's not always working in prestige movies. He's not working once every two years when a really great role comes along. He'll take a lot of roles. But if you comb through his filmography, there are a lot of really subtle, really fantastic performances there. And, and we're going to highlight some of those today. So I'm ready for my draft, Will. Uh, who goes first today? I'm going to let you go first because I think I know what you're going to pick. And uh, because I, I care for you so much, I would never steal it from you. Oh, I appreciate that. And you know that my number one choice for the best relatively subtle Samuel L. Jackson performance is Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. It's Jackie Brown. Well, you know, if she got it, well, why didn't she take it all? Oh, I'd be sure and ask that bitch before I blow her brains out. Well, maybe her feds got it. Mm -mm -mm -mm. See, if there wasn't nothing in that bag but them towels, then maybe she didn't get a chance to take the money out of her suitcase and the ATF got it. But she put them books in there to trick her ass. Well, that's why I didn't check it, because the bag fell right. That's right. And then she puts 40 grand or so in there to rub that shit in my face. You know what I'm saying? She wants me to know she ripped me off. In this movie, Samuel L. Jackson gets to play one of his most complex characters. Uh, the name is Ordell Roby. He's a low-level arms dealer in Los Angeles. He has a flight attendant working for him, trafficking cash between L.A. and Mexico. She gets busted and ends up colluding with the ATF to bring him down. So that's the plot of the movie. And Roby is clearly the villain in the film. But shockingly for a Tarantino movie, his depiction of villainy in this movie is really subtle and nuanced. And the character is full of contradictions. He's smart enough to get by as a criminal and can be very clever when he needs to get something done. But he's dumb enough to get hustled by Jackie, who he totally underestimates as a 40-something flight attendant. He can be funny at times. He can be compassionate at times. He can be emotionally needy at times and yet brutally violent and sociopathic in other scenes. He's a real complex person who just happens to be a criminal. And I've never really seen that type of performance in a movie before with so many different shades uh, for a criminal character. And there's a shot in the movie that is, is always at the front of my mind when I think about Samuel L. Jackson. It's right at the end, near the end, when Ordell has sort of figured out that everybody's conspiring against him. And the bounty hunter who helps Jackie Brown, played by Robert Forster, calls Ordell to lure him to the office where he's going to be finally arrested or shot. And Tarantino shoots the conversation from behind Ordell, who's sitting down. We never see his face in this scene. 
but he conveys just incredible menace and cunning without ever raising his voice above a whisper while he's talking to this bounty hunter on the phone. It's absolutely brilliant acting, and he does it without all of what we think of the as the typical Samuel L. Jackson tools, his voice, the, the bug eyes, and all that stuff. It's just really subtle, subtle work, and it's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, I don't have much to add to it because I think you completely nailed it, though. You know, every or at least almost every Sam Jackson performance where he's a significant role in the last 20, 25 years usually features at least one monologue, uh, one sort of over the top one liner. But there's an ancient Greek expression that uh, the dose makes the poison. So, when, you know, you can't expect a Sam Jackson portrayal where he doesn't, you know, shout something out like in Jackie Brown, like AK-47. When you got to right. kill every something, something in the room. So you, you're going to get a little bit of that. But it's right. not too many monologues, not too many over the top exclamations of one thing or another. And he really can truly portray a rich substance filled character. Ordell Roby is like a lot of villains in Elmore novel books, and Jackie Brown is an Elmore, no, uh, Elmore Leonard uh, adaptation where mm -hmm. the villains don't walk around outwardly portraying themselves as villains all the time, something that I think the movies too often do. But uh, they are complex and oftentimes ordinary people. There is something quite ordinary about Ordell Roby, even though the things he does are. Uh, are uncommon. Great point. Great point. What's your number one pick? My number one pick is uh, 2002's Changing Lanes. Yeah, I hope you don't mind, but I was intrigued by your conversation. Man. I just thought you were in advertising. So I want to give you my dream version of a Tiger Woods commercial, okay? <laughs> Go ahead. There's this black guy on a golf course. And all these people are trying to get him to caddy for them, but he's not a caddy. He's just a guy trying to play a round of golf. Then these guys give him a $5 bill and tell him to go to the clubhouse and get him cigarettes and beer. So off he goes, home, to his wife and to their little son, who he teaches to play golf. Where Samuel Jackson plays Doyle Gibson, a recovering alcoholic, recently recovering alcoholic, trying to get his life back together, uh, have a house, get custody of his children again, trying to pull things all together. He's an emotionally fragile person who only needs to have one bad thing happen to him one day, and it almost completely upends his life. Uh, he stars opposite Ben Affleck as a person who, on the surface, has everything positive going for him is not desperate, is not in trouble, uh, can only see clear blue skies ahead. And this event that upends uh, Samuel Jackson's life proves to upend his as well. And the two of them have a rather important transformation happen to both of them. The thing I liked about Jackson's performances, uh, and you don't see this a lot in movies that deal with alcoholism or drug addiction, is it is a great and, in my experience, very accurate portrayal of what one's life and feelings can be like in early recovery from alcoholism, where even while you're not drinking, your life still feels like it's out of control. And uh, huh. I was moved by it. 
Wow. I, I don't remember this movie very much, but you talked about it, I think, on the, the Glass podcast. So I've been meaning to revisit it and, and I'll have to do that. It really is forgotten. Like when, when people talk about Jackson's career and Affleck's career, nobody ever brings up this movie. And uh, it's probably a shame. It's, uh, it's near the end or the, it's sort of the end of the good Affleck run before the, uh, mm-hmm. the mid 2000s, the, uh, the dark age of Affleck. I'm just looking at it online. It had a $45 million budget in 2002. That's a lot for a little movie like this. They must have been commanding pretty hefty paydays back then. And, uh, well, you know, it, uh, Amanda Peet, I believe, was in there, and she was still drawing a decent paycheck. Uh, some good supporting right. characters. William Hurt's in that. You actually had a, a lot of that, uh, that budget was payroll. Hmm, interesting. I'll have to check it out. Um, my number two pick, this might seem counterintuitive at first, but you got to hear me out. I'm going with Django Unchained. Hello, Steven, my boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my ass. Who this nigga up on that name? Oh, Steven, you have nails for breakfast. What's the matter? Why are you so honored? You miss me, huh? Oh, yes, sir. I, I miss you like a like a hog miss flop, like a like a, a baby miss mammy titty. <laughs> I miss you like I misses a rock in my shoe. <laughs> In the first, so we don't meet Samuel L. Jackson's character in this movie until the last hour, I would say. He plays Stephen, uh, the longtime house slave to Calvin Candy, who is uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a sadistic slave owner. Now, you might think this is a cheat because when we first meet Stephen, Jackson plays him in a very outlandish, unsubtle way. He's like a caricature of internalized racism. He seems more racist as a, a black slave than Calvin Candy does, who is a really cruel slave owner. Um, he, in the first scene, when Django, played by Jamie Foxx, comes uh, to Calvin's home, Stephen gets all up in arms complaining about having another black character sleep, having any black character sleeping in the house. He's saying, you're going to have to burn the bed and the sheets afterwards. It's just all the worst racist things you can imagine said by a slave. But what the movie's talking about is internalized racism and how that works. And it's a really subversive twist on you know, the near minstrelism that Jackson has been forced to sort of resort to in Hollywood as his career has gone on. The depiction is so broad and Tarantino contextualizes it so well that it seems like a comment on minstrelism in a fascinating way. And the relationship between Stephen and Calvin Candy is actually one of the more complex ones in any Tarantino film. And clearly Jackson is putting a lot of thought into that. And actually, as this, as this, the conversation moves to the dinner table that evening, Stephen takes on a completely new role. He's much more quiet and subtle. He's trying to sniff out a connection between Django and Hildy, who is one of Candy's slaves and actually Django's wife that he's there to save. And Jackson becomes like all quiet menace here, playing detective at the dinner table. And, uh, you know, Candy is technically the heavy. He's a very cruel, violent man. But Stephen is like the brains of the operation. And the fact that Jackson can embody that part of Stephen and the other part of Stephen. Uh, really shows what a deceptively complex performance it is. It's an interesting choice. It's one that I would have automatically ruled uh, out of my list because of the many monologues, and at least on the face of it, you know, overly dramatic, overwrought uh, lines of dialogue that he portrays. But I guess you're arguing that um, there are times when that uh, behavior or portrayal is earned. And mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, Jackson's performance in Kong Skull Island, 
where uh, <laughs> there's not there's not enough of a justification for him to act as insane as he does. Yeah, there's a thought behind. It. I guess what I'm saying it's a subtle performance, if not a subtle character. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, uh, you know what? I'm you. uh, I'm I'm mostly sold on that. So I'll take it. I would for number two. I'm gonna pick Samuel Jackson's performance as Robbie Jackson in Patriot Games, 1993. Jackson plays Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan's best friend. Attention to orders. I have a presentation to make. For service above and beyond the call of duty of a tourist, even a Marine, (laughs) we recognize Professor John Patrick Ryan with the order of the purple target and hope that he will duck next time lest he become part of history rather than a teacher of it. <laughs> you actually get a little bit of, uh, of great one-liners. You have an interesting monologue and in his describing how his, uh, his friend Jack Ryan just got shot in a terrorist incident in London. And it's actually really interesting and rich character, particularly for those who read as many of the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan novels as I did. One of my great disappointments, actually, is that the character of Robbie Jackson is in almost every one of those books. He plays Jack Ryan's best friend and Jack Ryan having a best friend is often seen as somewhat of a a solitary character, you know, one man alone fighting against a system or a conspiracy it add a, it adds a depth to Ryan's humanity by having this friend. Also, it's sort of an incongruous friendship where Jackson uh, plays a Southerner who went into the Navy, a Southern black man who went into the Navy. Jack Ryan's character is uh, comes from a Boston Irish police family who went into the Marines, and the two of them form an unlikely friendship. And yet, uh, mm-hmm. despite all of the Jack Ryan movies plus the latest series that have come out, the character of Robbie Jackson only shows up in Patriot Games and is never in anything else again. But he's just uh, from the start. It's one of these things where this is before uh, Jurassic Park, before uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, before Sam Jackson becomes a star. It shows just what a terrific addition he could be to any movie. And this is like right before Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like two years before. It's so he was year. really on the run. Year before Pulp Fiction. Yeah, incredible. Uh, I don't remember him in it. You've picked, he must be, you picked two movies that are, his performances are so subtle that they com- are completely lost on me. So well done. Uh, all right. My number three pick, I'm going with a documentary called I Am Not Your Negro. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. This is a really mesmerizing film about James Baldwin. Uh, that uses the great writer's words on three slain civil rights heroes, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and uh, Malcolm X, to make powerful points about racism today. And I, it's, it's a call for clarity and the threat of violence, both by black activists and against black activists, runs through it quite a bit. So it's really brilliant that they have Samuel L. Jackson narrate it in Baldwin's words. And Jackson uses the quietest voice I have ever heard from him. It's a hushed, almost elegiac tone that highlights the beauty of Baldwin's prose. And it is really beautiful. But knowing Jackson how we know him, there's a a latent power there, like an explosion that we're waiting for. And it fits the material. 
and it creates a sustained tension through the whole movie. It's really incredible. I didn't even know it was him. I couldn't imagine it was him until I saw it in the end credits. So it's it's not a performance exactly. It's more like a, a recitation, but it's incredibly well done, and I highly recommend the movie. That sounds interesting. I'm going to check that out. I've seen that before um, it's on, on one of the online. Uh... Yeah. I don't think it won it, it won an Oscar, but it was nominated a couple of years ago, and uh, it was one of my favorite films of the year. It's really quite mesmerizing. I will check that out. Well, you know, you've mentioned uh, several Sam Jackson performances, which at least to some effect address race, racial issues, racism in America at different points in time. And so far, I haven't. But uh, my number three pick deals with that heavily, and that is 1996's A Time to Kill where Samuel L. Jackson plays Carl Lee Haley, the father of a girl who's been horribly assaulted by two white men. Uh, Carl Lee Haley soon takes his murderous revenge on those two men, which uh, results in a murder trial with which he is the defendant. In a, uh, this is sort of the golden age of John Grisham uh, adaptations. And in a movie where, and this is a lot of the, the Grisham films, everyone's monologuing and everyone's often cheering mm-hmm. the scenery. You had a cast of uh, Matthew McConaughey, Oliver Platt, Kevin Spacey, Donald Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland. Just, it's a big ensemble. Sandra Bullock. There's monologue after monologue. Everybody's hogging for attention. But I actually think that Samuel Jackson's performance which does include the, uh, you know, the great line, you know, yes, they deserve to die. I hope they burn in hell. But again, this is a uh, sort of a deserved over the top moment where Jackson is, is honestly expressing something in a way that most people could identify with if they were in such a terrible circumstance. But uh, he talks a lot about uh, the limitations of friendship between him, Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey sort of plays a, uh, somewhat uh, progressive or at least imagines himself as a progressive defense attorney who believes that he cares about racial justice and racial issues, who, who actually says, you know, he is, he even says in the movie at one point, I'm one of the good guys. And what Carl Mm -hmm. Lee Haley's character explains is you are given the limitations of the time we're in, but those limitations are a big deal. CJ, you think just like them, that's why I picked you. You one of them, don't you see? Oh, you think you ain't because you eating clothes and, and, and you out there trying to get me off on TV talking about black and white. But fact is, you just like all the rest of them. When you look at me, you don't see a man. You see a black man. There are some interesting and surprising developments in the movie, which really does deal with racial politics on sort of both sides of the debate and often shows that there's not two sides to the discussion, but rather there are lots of sides, uh, lots of sides to this discussion and debate, which are uh, which are revealing and thought provoking. That's really profound. And I would love to watch it again. I was doing a, a, a deep dive on 90s uh, legal dramas not that long ago, and I was trying to find this online, and I don't think it's available anywhere, uh, which is a shame. You must have a good memory, because I assume you haven't seen the movie. It's one of the good Joel Schumacher movies. 
There's uh, <laughs> he either does it good or does it bad. They should just uh, yeah, but it's it's well, plainly on the good side. Two things about it. number one, it is so funny that because when I think of Samuel Jackson in that movie, pretty much all I remember is him shouting that line. And it's so funny that even in his subtle performances, like all we really remember are the one time, the one moment in the movie where he shouts because he does it so well and so memorably. It's inevitably featured in the trailer, which we see a bunch of times. And and that's the moment we remember. So his subtlety gets overlooked. I'm glad we're highlighting it here. Second of all, you named the cast of that movie. And man, these 90s legal dramas were just a, a who's who of character actors, of that guys. And this might be the all time that guy movie. In addition to the people you mentioned, we got Oliver Platt, Charles S. Dutton, Brenda Fricker, uh, Anthony Heald, John Deal, Chris Cooper, Nikki Cat, Kurtwood Smith. They're all in this movie. Ashley it's incredible. Judd. Ashley, is she a that guy? She, she's well, I'm gonna say she's not a that guy, but I mean, there's so many great performances and great actors of the time, really great stars of movies at the time in it. I forgot she plays Matthew yeah. McConaughey's wife. Yeah, yeah. Octavia Spencer, it says, is in it too as someone's nurse, like a very small role. Oh, wow. Hell of a movie, hell of a cast. Yep. Uh, was there anything that just missed uh, your list? Anything just on the outside? Um, yeah, Jurassic Park. Uh, mm-hmm. where, and again, you have the art, uh, iconic line of hold on to your butts before uh, yeah, totally. Andrew Jackson reboots the uh, Jurassic Park's main computer system. And he actually has a great monologue about how all the dinosaurs are going to die. And he's just, uh, th- that was one I, I always like him in. He's a great ad. Like, is, is there anybody who is like better at line readings than Samuel L. Jackson? He just makes these words sing. No. You know, even a line like hold on to your butts, it's so small, but when I think of that movie, that's like way up there in terms of the things I think about. Yeah, I mean, Deep Blue Sea, which is a terrible movie, which I think I saw with you in theaters about 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> don't admit don't admit that in public. <laughs> I, I still love the monologue that Jackson does about surviving uh, an avalanche right before yeah. one of the super intelligent sharks jumps out of the water. <laughs> And grabs them and takes them under. Uh, that moment that is so good. It almost justifies. It almost justifies the whole movie, which the rest of it is terrible. Yeah. But that moment. Yeah. Is now really... Rennie Harlan, uh, unlike Joel Schumacher, he just makes bad movies. They're all in the bad category. <laughs> I almost. I had on my list um, the Negotiator. Mm. Uh, it's a little problematic because it's a Kevin Spacey movie, and he, you know, right now that's a little hard to to, to watch him on screen. No, they're editing, he's really they're good. editing Christopher Plummer into all of the scenes. <laughs> like they're going to re-release the Negotiator, and Christopher Plummer is going to play a fellow uh, Chicago uh, police hostage negotiator. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, Kevin Spacey. Look, I, I can. I'm not. It's not difficult for me to separate the art from the artist. Um, I think in in time I'll be able to watch The Negotiator again because Kevin Spacey is really good in it. It's a two-hander between him and Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson's like a hostage negotiator who gets set up and has to take hostages himself. And he calls in another negotiator from another precinct because he can't trust any of his colleagues to help him. And that's Kevin Spacey. It's a really, really good, tense sort of thriller Basic stuff, but it's really elevated by by Jackson and uh, and Spacey, unfortunately. Okay, well, that's Samuel L. Jackson, and that's our podcast. We'll be back in, I don't know, a week or two weeks to talk about something else, something exciting, something fun. And before we sign off, Will, I was thinking about 
our sign off actually you know we always end the podcast by saying we'll see you at the movies and it occurred to me that that doesn't really make sense because that's a that's a line from the show at the movies but our podcast isn't called at the movies so i don't I don't totally know how we ended up with that. I wanted to open the discussion of whether we should change it or whether we should just keep it because that's what we've been doing. Well, you know, leaving aside the glaring fact that you've decided to focus on my signature sign-off line as the one to cut out, you know, just to put that aside for a hot sec, uh, you know, yes, we say we'll see you at the movies, even though, unlike you, every one of these movies that I've seen that we've discussed, I've seen all by myself. I think mm. you have uh, most of the movies you've seen that we've discussed, you've seen by yourself. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say it's aspirational. My hope is that one day, whether I'm sitting next to you or uh, just a super fan of the show, or uh, you know, my own wife, if she ever decides she wanted to see one of these, uh, there's a hope. We're we're leaving the, the we're ending the show on hope. Well, we used to see movies together all the time when we were younger, but I don't I can't remember the last time we saw one together. So we should we should I try to do that. Sometimes. That's where it all went wrong for us, Noah. <laughs> and we had to resort to getting our weekly phone call in uh, on a podcast instead of like two human beings, you know. Yeah, we're together. just we're just acting out our catharsis on a uh, a new <laughs> entertainment medium. Hey, you know what? Let's see a movie together. Okay. That'd be- okay, you don't even sound enthusiastic about it. Well, you know, it's that whole, you know, the first cut is the deepest. Like, I, I got to see the movie with you before I can learn to love again, that type of thing. All right. Well, this is going to be complicated, but uh, we'll see. We'll see you next week, and we'll, I'll see you. Bro, <laughs> don't cut into my line. We'll see you at the movies. Right, now you took both parts. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I know where I'm going to go. I'm gonna pick my baby up and take her to the picture show. Everybody in the little neighborhood is dressing up to be there too. And we're gonna have a ball just like we always do. Saturday night at the movies, who cares what picture you see?